0: We'll have our service there for you on the phone hookup at uh, at our normal Sabbath time of one o'clock, and uh, for atonement. Or did I change? Did I make that earlier? I don't think I did. Well, it, well one o'clock. Uh, here's an announcement about uh, Shirley Heitman's uh, daughter-in-law. Uh, She was having some difficulties, we announced previously. It says, after spending several weeks in rehab, uh, Mary Ann Kennebeck, Shirley's daughter-in-law, is returned home yesterday. Once again, we wish to thank you for your prayers and support. That's from Paul and Mary Ann and from Shirley. Well, if atonement's next week, that means of tabernacles can't be very far off either. Uh... So here's a feast announcement already. We're having three different activities during the Feast of Tabernacles, other than our services. I mean social family activities. And uh, they've totaled all up the meals, uh, the ice cream social and everything. So for all three of the activities, it adds up to $15 per person for all three activities combined, which is pretty cheap. Uh, It says, please have the money turned in to Sharnell and or Rachel by the 2nd of October so supplies can be purchased. It's almost October. The 2nd of October isn't far away, so of course that can come out of your second tithe. No problem there at all. It's for the feast. But get that to one of those two individuals if you can between now and the 2nd of October. Now, who was this Gedaliah character, and why is he standing between me and my breakfast and lunch today? What does it have to do with today? He was a Jew at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar, not God, but Nebuchadnezzar appointed him as the governor of the Jews who were left behind when the captivity went into Babylon. Babylon. Uh, He was later killed, but a fast was instituted so that the Jews, from that time forward, fasted on this day that we are today fasting. So what connection is there between that ancient history and today, and what the Jews do, and what God's people, apart from those who might be physically Judah, are doing... At this time, I think I will, I know I will, take time today to go into this a bit and help us perhaps better understand why it is that we need to do this. I was never done in Worldwide Church of God. There may be some little groups somewhere around the world that I don't know of who may be doing this. But as far as the greater church, or the lesser church of God, I should say, Uh, Perhaps We used to call it the greater church of God that had been split, but it's lesser and lesser all the time. Uh, I don't know of any out there, I've never heard of it at least, who are keeping the fasts that the Jews keep and that are mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And we started doing it after I examined Zechariah pretty carefully. And I've preached that and read it to you before, but I want to go back to Zechariah 7 today and rehearse just a little bit of this, because it's germane to what I have to say about why we are doing it today. And it has a great deal to do with history and with prophecy. So here it says in chapter 7, It came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah, fourth, fourth day of the ninth month. And when they had sent to the houses of God some men to pray before the Eternal and to speak to the priests which were in the house of the Eternal of Hosts and to the prophets. So these men went to pray and they went to ask questions. And they are questioning, Should I weep in the fifth month separating myself as I have done these so many years? So even some of the Jews in the days of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, of the original Joshua and and Zechariah, when the temple was there to be built and the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, uh, they were questioning way back then, long before Christ ever came to the earth, should I have been keeping these fasts? What's the point here? Why am I doing this? And you might have asked the same question. Why are we doing this? from something so long ago. Then came the word of the eternal host to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land, not just to these few Jews who came asking the question, but speak to all the people of the land. And to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, this is the fast of the seventh month today, of course, the third day of the seventh month, Even those 70 years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? So they were in captivity, 70 years in Babylon, more or less, and came out of there, most of them, some elected to stay. But they had fasted those 70 years, and now it was something that had continued down to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and of, as I said, Joshua and, and Zerubbabel, who were involved in the building of that temple and of Jerusalem at that time. And God said, did it do any good? What were you doing? Was it about me? Or was it about you? And when you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Now there's another question. If we fast, do we fast fast? For self, or for God? And when we do eat and drink, do we eat and drink for God? I had never thought of it in quite that way until I just read it again here, or at least I don't remember it. But we know that every breath we draw on this earth for the time that we have been allotted is to be to the glory and the purposes of God and to see that we become a part of the kingdom of God and fulfill part of his eternal plan to turn men into God and to have an eternal kingdom in the universe and on the earth. So, every day, when we eat and drink our three squares or whatever, it is to be to God. Our purpose in life is all about God. So whether we fast or whether we eat, it's about God. And we need to keep that in mind day by day. Should you not hear the words which the Eternal has uh, cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities around about her when the men inhabited the south and the plain. So he's hearkening back to the time that the prophets spoke before Jerusalem was taken captive, and saying, should you not have listened to those prophets then, you had opportunity to repent, you wouldn't have gone into captivity, many of you would not have died, you wouldn't have had to have lived in Babylon all those years, and Gedaliah wouldn't have had to have died among the many other repercussions that came as a result of them not listening to the prophets. So God is taking this opportunity to say you should have listened. And now that it has happened, you need to be fasting because you still haven't turned to God in the way that you should have. Now this has modern ramifications, and I'll... Maybe I'll try to wait until I get down to that part of the story before bringing it in, because I want, before we're done, to tie it to you and me, and what this is all about here. Remember, Zechariah is an end-time prophecy. Uh, It's among the minor prophets, and right toward the end of them, and talks about the end of the age and the events of it. So this is very, very much real and alive for you and me today because we are at the end time of this end time prophecy which culminates with Christ coming to the earth in chapter 14. The word of the eternal king to Zechariah is saying, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion; every man to his brother. Seems everywhere we go in the Bible, we were reading... Something very, very similar to that, just uh, on the piece of trumpets Uh, there in Malachi about interpersonal relationships and communication between brethren and so on. Doesn't matter where you go, it seems like you run into this, and especially among the prophecies that have to do with today. Uh, That we're to be loving one another and. It was said to the New Testament church over and over and over as well. I think I mentioned the other day that Paul said that we were to love each other fervently, not just sort of half-heartedly or dismissively, but fervently, deeply, and show it, and not oppress the widow, the stranger, uh, or the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Don't allow any thoughts of evil, Toward your brother in your heart. But they refused historically to listen and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. People have not changed. We will see that in a few moments as we rehearse some things. Yes, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Eternal of Hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Eternal of Hosts. So historically speaking, God had sent great wrath because people didn't listen to God's words, to the law, and did not apply it to their relationships with mankind. And he's rehearsing that here, and he's projecting it forward to the end. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, says the Eternal of Here in modern times, when the horrible things that are about to happen begin to come down, people are going to pray, and God is not going to hear. That is the pattern of the past, and that's what he's saying here in this prophecy. It will be too late. Herbert Armstrong came and preached, we're preaching today. But people don't listen much. They don't want to hear it. And they find fault and they pull away. And they will suffer. Therefore it has come to pass, oh so he said, I will not hear, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, but no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. So God just lays the story out again about what had transpired and what will transpire again. Now I know you're, in your mind you can begin to, and we've done it many times, tie this to what's happened here with the church over the last few decades, <laughs> I used to say past few years, but it's now turning in, pushing at thirty years since these things began to happen. So More said there about this, and the, again the word of the Eternal Host came to me saying, "Thus says the Eternal Host: I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and was jealous for her with great fury." Oh, God loves. His people. He loves us very deeply. And when we go the wrong way or deny His words or pull the shoulder away or give into our carnal human nature and don't pay rapt attention to Him and His ways and diligently obey Him, He has a fit of jealousy. Now, He controls it. I'm not saying it's wrong of God to be jealous. I'm glad he's jealous. I'm glad he cares about us. But it's not uncontrolled jealousy or jealousy for a wrong reason. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the City of Truth and the Mountain of the Eternal of Hosts, the Holy Mountain. I think I'm going to stop there, and maybe we'll come back to this later if I think of it and have time. But God is letting us know that he was angry and frustrated. And we have seen that. We've experienced that in modern days, where what God had built was only half worshiping him, and half in the world, and lackadaisical, and only going through the motions and it infuriated him. So he spewed us out of his mouth. When you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah's day and start talking about the Babylonian captivity, the same same thing happened then. So there are lessons back there for us to learn. This story of, of uh, is back in Jeremiah 40 and 41, as well as briefly mentioned in Second Kings 25, And I don't want to read the whole story for sake of time because there are other things I want to do and I don't want to make this too long today anyway. But when when Jerusalem was besieged and then the walls were breached, the temple was burned, the city was destroyed, and Nebuchadnezzar took thousands and thousands of people into captivity back to Babylon. Now he didn't take everyone that was there, he left poor people, uh, people who he didn't have use for perhaps as slaves, he didn't need that many. He did have in mind uh, slavery and certain uh, jobs. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom they immediately uh, castrated, neutered, and uh, then began to train them to serve in the king's court and so on. So from the king's court right on down through the government and perhaps society, they had use for slaves, people to serve them in the way they wanted to be served. So they took as many as they wanted for that and left some behind. In other words, Jerusalem was not left desolate even in the Babylonian captivity. And yet God says that the true Jerusalem would be left desolate uh, for many, many generations, which it has. We won't get into any more of that, just touching on it. But uh, that Jerusalem over there has never been desolate either. In any case, when Nebuchadnezzar departed, uh, he had it set up that uh, a Jew would be set as governor of the land. So he picked out a Jew that I assume he must have thought would be faithful, would pay tribute, would honor uh, him as the king of Babylon, and would not rebel. Uh, There wasn't much left to rebel with, really, because the fighting men uh, had been killed to a great extent, and it was the poor, basically, who were left behind. So Gedaliah was appointed to be the governor over that area. Now, he had enemies, it turned out, and this uh, Johanan and other men came to Gedaliah and told him that the king of Ammon uh, was jealous, probably wanted the land, wanted everything that was there uh, of Gedaliah and the job that he had been given by Nebuchadnezzar. So, this Ammonite uh, got involved with some Jews uh I forget now the name of the, the guy involved it doesn't matter and sent him on a mission to kill Gedaliah so Johanan came to Gedaliah and told him there's some people coming that are going to kill you and Gedaliah says, oh no they won't do that so, well, you know, what, have, what have I done why would they kill me But they came anyway, and sat down to eat, and when they rose up, they slew him. So it wasn't the Ammonite himself who slew him, but it was his own people who had been influenced by the Ammonite. Now the Jews then mourned that Geroliah had been killed, and the part of the story that is there, is that Jeremiah was also on the scene. Getaliah was not the prophet that God had sent, that Jeremiah watched. The people would not listen to Jeremiah, they wouldn't repent, they pulled back the shoulder, they were hard-hearted about it, they tried to kill Jeremiah, they did imprison him, they treated him pretty badly. And yet... Jeremiah said, that's the way it's going to be. You're going to go into captivity unless you repent. Now, someone had mercy on Jeremiah and pulled him out of the dungeon that he was in. And the king uh, conspired with him uh, for Jeremiah not to tell everything that passed between him and the king. But he had delivered him and so on. So the enemies came and questioned Jeremiah, and he was able to pass it off. Not too much problem. But these people who had actually tried to intervene for Gedaliah went to Jeremiah after Gedaliah was dead and said, Jeremiah, these things you've said have happened. Uh, Our people have gone into captivity. Now our governor is dead. Uh, What does God say we should do now? Now, they had already seen an Ammonite conspire to kill Gedaliah, and perhaps they were afraid not only of an Ammonite invasion, but perhaps because Nebuchadnezzar's appointed governor had been killed, maybe Nebuchadnezzar would come back and destroy them for what they had done. So they were afraid. And in the backs of their minds, maybe the front of their minds, it turns out they were wanting to go down into Mitzrayim, to Egypt, to hide from the wrath that might come upon them. So he says, what does God have to say, Jeremiah? So Jeremiah went and talked to God, and ten days later the answer came, so he looked them up and said, here's the word of the Lord. Now these people had asked... Jeremiah, for God's word. You would think, would you not, that had they asked for and sought God's word, when they heard it, they would be happy to hear it and comply with it. Wouldn't you think that? But people are not that way. Jeremiah said, God said, Don't go down into Egypt. If you go into Egypt, you will die there. So they went to Egypt. Why even ask God if you don't want to hear his answer? Why bother? Why be here if we don't want to hear his answers? If we don't want to do what he says? Why even ask? Why consider it? Why read the Bible? If you're not going to do what he says anyway, what's the point? In fact, you might even bring wrath upon your head if you do seek God's word, and then it comes, and you deny it. That's pretty scary territory to be in as well. So, they're headed for Mitzrayim. Well, it turns out, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't apparently that upset about some Jewish governor being killed. You know, there's lots of them around. You can get another one. Or whatever. And the Ammonites didn't attack... But Nebuchadnezzar had already destroyed Jerusalem. He had already taken the Jews captive. He didn't want to go back there and mop up a few poor people that had been left behind. He had bigger worlds to conquer. Guess who he decided to go after? Mitzrayim, Egypt. And guess where the people who had inquired of God had gone? There. And there they died. So that's the story, basically, of Gadaliah and a little bit of the background involving it. Now, I want to go to Zechariah 1 and tie a little bit together here, because Zechariah was there uh, telling the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on, but the book of Haggai was written to Joshua and Zerubbabel and the remnant of the people about building the temple. And the book of Zechariah, based on the dates in Haggai and here in Zechariah, began right in the middle of Haggai's message. And here's what God had Zechariah say first in verse 2 of chapter 1. The eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. God hasn't been happy with those that you came from. Therefore say you to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of hosts. Now that is a statement in various ways. It is said throughout the Bible. That's what the whole Bible is about, really, is turning to God. Since Adam and Eve turned away from him, and it has been a goal and purpose of God's ever since to get every generation to turn to him. And he has had very, very little success. That doesn't mean ultimately he won't, because he has his rights. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, Did they not take hold of your fathers? I sent prophets, they warned the people, they told them what was coming, the people didn't listen, and the destruction came. Isn't this the story? Well, yeah, yes it is. They returned and said, "Like as the Eternal of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so has He dealt with us." Now we just read that a little later in the book of Zechariah, really, where God says, "When they pray, when they come to Me, I won't hear." Why didn't you listen when I was telling you? Why didn't you change then? Why did you wait until it was too late and you saw trouble coming and you saw your friends and neighbors being killed and then you prayed to God? By then God had already turned loose the destruction and the war and the famine and the pestilence. And he wasn't going to listen. He was going to let it run its course. It doesn't matter where you go in history, you find the same story. You can go back to Adam and Eve. God gave them instruction. Told them what to do and how to live and what they could and could not touch and whatever all instruction he gave them. But they didn't listen when he told them. And then they did what he said don't do. And then he came and says, what have you been doing? And they began to make excuses. And then he turned punishment upon them. That punishment is still upon us today because he made a prophecy there in Genesis 2 and 3 that it would. To having to earn a living by the sweat of a brow and women having difficulty with child rearing and all kinds of troubles and trouble between us and Satan ever since, the serpent. And God won't hear until it has run its course. Now, he began to pick out people who were righteous to try to turn things around. It had gotten so bad, he decided, I'm just going to wipe them out. Let's just, let's just forget the whole thing. You know, this is too big of a pain in the neck. They won't listen. They won't do what we say. The world is so violent and so filthy and wretched. There's nothing there worth saving. Everything they think, everything they do is evil continually. Oop, I've got a problem though. There's one guy down there that listens. What i going to do with him. That Noah. I could just wipe them all out, but man, I remember the story about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, well, what if there's 50? What if it, you know, he keeps going down smaller and smaller? Yeah, I'll save it for that many. I'll save it for that many. Back then, he saved it for just one. One obedient one. That's how merciful and how compassionate and how loving God is. For the sake of one man, he didn't destroy the creation of mankind. But the flood came anyway, didn't it? But Noah and a total of eight people were saved out of it to start replenishing the earth and making another run and getting man to listen to God and be righteous. That didn't work out too well. Well, Enoch was there too. I don't mean to pass up Enoch, but uh, he apparently had died. So there was only one man Noah left. So then it comes down to Abraham. Mankind had been going the wrong way again. Nimrod had built all these cities and had gone into paganism and on and on and on it went. But here was Abraham who would listen to God. One man, basically, again, listening to God. So God began to work with Abraham. And he made a plan and a promise to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and their seed forever. That if they would obey him, he would make a great people of them as the sand of the sea. and, And on and on it went. And what he would do and make them an example nation to the other nations who obviously wouldn't listen. So he took the only guy at that point, really, that would listen and was working through him. Maybe there were others that kind of listened, but not as much as Abraham did. And Isaac and Jacob. But they had troubles in the family, uh, you know, about all the jealousies in the parents and the kids back and forth and so on. And it didn't work out too well, but... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were basically faithful people. But after their death, Israel went into sin and degradation and everything else all over again. So God sent them into captivity. 430 years in Mitzrayim, where they became slaves and went through a great deal of pain and trouble and agony. So God had a baby born at a time when they were trying to kill all the babies, all the male babies, because they were afraid there was somebody coming to take Israel away from Pharaoh and from Mizria. So they had to hide him and preserve him, and he wound up being raised by the princess. And this went out over a period of time, 40 years, and then he had to go 40 years into the wilderness, so. After 80 years when God had set his hand to start delivering, that's quite a while, you know. Not very many here have lived even 80 years. Few of you have. Long time to wait. They were still making bricks. They didn't know. God was working on the problem ahead of time. God always does. So they waited, and they waited, not knowing that they were waiting, really. Just going through slavery day in and day out. So God sent Moses then to deliver them and he said, God sent them. He said, which God is that? We got lots. So there's a little bit of communication problem there to get things going, but God through a series of incredible signs and wonders, delivered them from that captivity. He even parted the sea so they could walk through on dry land and then ground the Mitzrayimites in behind it. Now you would think, would you not, that after all that, those people have said, Oh man, oh man, now I know there is a God and I know who He is, and I am going to worship Him forevermore. Look at the signs and the wonders and the miracles and how we just barely escaped and they all got ground and there's one floating by now. I am going to serve God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul from now on. Where's the water? We don't have any water. Moses, you brought us out here to die. Oh, man. We've heard this story. God worked with David and Solomon. He set up kings because they wanted a king. David did some incredible works. Solomon built... The temple of God with gold and silver and incredible building it was. But Israel departed from God. Even Solomon himself lost his focus and went into all kinds of stuff. It's been kind of an uphill battle. Samuel was there as a prophet and he tried to tell them they denied Samuel. God said, Don't worry about Samuel, comes to the territory. It is not really you that hate Samuel, it's me. Oh, okay, I feel so much better. <laughs> well, we probably did feel a little better, but he was still the one getting the barbs and the jibes and the hate and the the postcards and emails. It was him that was getting the trouble. But it was really God, they didn't want to obey, didn't want to follow, didn't like the things that he said. Elijah stood up against the priests of Baal, did incredible miracles. Well, there were over 400 were killed. You remember the story. Oh, you priests of Baal, you know, let's see your God. Oh, he didn't show up, didn't it? Well, all right, let's call on the eternal God. Down comes fire, laps up the wood, the sacrifices, the the altar, the water, everything that was there. Elijah poured water on everything. The priest of Baal didn't even have that. He wet it down really, really good, and God did the job anyway. They didn't really listen to Elijah. Go through all the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All the minor prophets. They cried out, they warned, nobody listened. God would always have to bring captivity, trouble, famine, pain, misery upon them. They always stoned the prophets. Even Moses' own brother and sister tried it. God punished them. Those closest to him were against him as well. This happened over and over and over again. Christ himself came to the earth. God's very own son. He came, never did anything wrong, never said anything wrong, never thought anything wrong, was tempted like as we are, but never sinned the whole time he was here. Never wronged anybody, never hurt anybody. But that's all he was accused of, of wronging people and hurting people. through his whole life. That little bastard from Nazareth, he can't be worth anything. We know him. Never wronged anybody. But that was his reputation. He wrongs everybody. He treats everybody unfairly. Look what he's saying to those Pharisees. Those righteous, wonderful Pharisees, look what he's saying about them. Do you hear the names he called them? He didn't bring that stuff up. It was true. And he said that's what they were. But he preached truth. He preached a way to the kingdom of God. He taught it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and all through his ministry. Of how you can be a part of the kingdom of God and live forever without pain, sorrow, trouble, tears, or any of the above. And what did they do? They stoned the prophet. Well, in this particular case, they didn't use rocks, but they killed him horribly. Rejecting him entirely. The very Son of God. Now, you might have found some things wrong with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Elijah, or Moses, or any of those guys. You might have found something wrong with them. Probably could have. Even Noah got so drunk, he was abused. So, there was something wrong with David. There was things wrong with all those people. There wasn't anything wrong with Christ. So, you and I and they have no excuse, do we? Not to listen to every word of our Savior and do exactly as he says. We have no excuse. Now he said that here in the end time it will be the same. And that's why Zechariah in chapter 7 included these fasts and what went wrong. Now let's fast forward a bit to today, or almost today. Here in this end time, God wanted to revive his word. He wanted to call many people so that he might choose out of those, the rest of the candidates to be the bride of his son when he returns. He needed 144,000 total. So he raised up a man named Herbert Armstrong. And I remember back in the early 50s, mid-50s, listening to XCLO and XEG from over in Mexico, 50,000 watt clear channel stations, they would say. We'd go out to the car radio and we would listen because it was very staticky and you couldn't hear it in the house, and so we'd go sit in the car to listen to the broadcast. And he was preaching back then, I can clearly remember, messages from Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah about how this nation had better repent or would go into captivity. He was preaching pretty strongly back in those years. And then once GTA took over and so on, then we heard about whales, dolphins, platypuses, and bees, and so on. We didn't hear much of the gospel of the kingdom of God. But still in all, God was calling people. And they were learning the basic doctrines and believing and following. And the church began to increase a great deal. But people began to find fault with Herbert Armstrong. I believe he was a minister of God. I believe God raised him up and showed him the things he showed him for a purpose. And he preached them far and wide, traveled the whole earth, trying to get a message across. Somewhat mild and gentle, give and get as opposed to you dirty, rotten sinners. And no one wanted to listen. Now, God did out of that call, roughly, at one time at its biggest, about 150,000, counting kids, grandparents, and dogs, and everything else that showed up at the feast. And some were dying all along. So there were quite a few called over those years that the Worldwide Church of God existed. But people began to take exception to him and point out his faults and his weaknesses, either real or imagined, and write books about it and newspapers and uh, postings on the internet about his alleged sins. Some of them may have been true, some of them may not have been. I don't know, and frankly, I could care less. What I saw was God was using the man for his purposes, to build up a church for the end time that God's Word could be seen through, and to give people a chance to follow and to obey. Well, the church didn't react in the way it should have. We were lukewarm as it wound down, and he did Herbert Armstrong knew it was off the track. We tried to put it back on. But he was getting feeble, about to die. And he needed a replacement. When I talked to him in '81 in his office. All he could talk about was, who am I going to get to replace me? And he started naming evangelists. Ah, he can't do it, he can't do it, he can't do it. Joe DeCott sitting there, he can't do it, right in front of him. He worried over that bomb for years, decades perhaps, who's going to be my replacement. And there was none qualified. But he was very, very frustrated. I saw him again. The last time I spoke personally with him was in 1983. And he said, I've got to do everything I can to stay alive. He said, if I die, this church is going to blow apart. It will just come apart. There's no one to lead it. He saw that. And then three years later, Two and a half years later, he died. And what happened? The church blew apart. Now, we have the prophecies we've since examined showing that self-righteousness, Laodiceanism, would occur and that Christ would have to spew the church out of his mouth. Now that was spoken directly to the Laodiceans, and he spewed the whole church, so I assumed the whole church had marked from whatever they might have been into the Laodiceans. Because I got spewed too, didn't you? Now notice a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 51. Here he's leading up to Him beginning to turn things around in the church in chapter 52, 3, and 4. Excuse me. Better in 51, 17. I took a glass of water, but there's no one up here. Verse 17 of Isaiah 51. Awake. Wake up. Listen. Don't sleep. Listen, he says. Stand up, Jerusalem. That's a cold word for the church here in the end. We know from Hebrews 12. Which has drunk at the hand of the Eternal, the cup of his fury. So we heard from Herbert Armstrong, he told us to get back on the track. From time to time he would say, I don't think half of you get it. And then he changed that. I heard him many times say, I don't think ten percent of you get it. For the apostle of the end time age to say to the church, I don't think 10% of you get it, or more than 10% of you get it, almost became prophetic. Because I found in the scripture sense, there in Isaiah 6, that only a tenth will return. Among other places that's mentioned, a remnant, which is roughly 10%. Over and over through the prophecies, it says that. He had it figured out. Only about 10% really got it. And that's corroborated by Scripture. Here he says, Wake up, Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Eternal the cup of his fury. And we, shortly after he died, began to suffer from that cup of fury, and we were scattered. So this is a prophecy about what has happened in your memory and mine. You have drunk the drugs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. There was a dearth of leadership. There was no one who could take his place. Well, Tkachus took over, but they didn't take his place. They took Satan's place. And they had a great hand in destroying the church, as Ezekiel 17 and other places say. Or as it Zechariah 5, but again, the end-time prophecy about how two unclean birds would take the church into the land of Babylon and set it on its base there, and there it would have a lead weight stuffed in its mouth. For Tacachis took them right back into the world, and they have been shut up, just as Zechariah five said. There was no one to leave. These two things have come to you, verse nineteen, who shall be sorry for you desolation, destruction, the famine, and the sword. And spiritually speaking, those have come on the church. Spiritual famine, pestilence, and war. And many, many, many have given up and died, or are so crippled they can hardly function, or so bitter, so angry, so frustrated, or whatever, that they've lost the attitude of God in a Christian. Tens of thousands of them. It's really sad we didn't listen to Herbert Armstrong trying to get us back on the track, trying to get us to turn to God with our hearts. And look what happened to us. Now this is being played out physically in the nation now. There was some warning that went out through Herbert Armstrong and the world of broadcasts, the plain truth, and so on, but nobody much paid attention. Yeah, we can say it was many called, but compared to the population of the country, it wasn't very many, was it? And the population of all the nations of Israel and the Gentiles around the world, not many paid heed. And now as we sit here today, we are facing Ebola, we are facing EMP attacks on the electrical grid, we are facing martial law, we are facing death, destruction, and captivity, where, as Ezekiel five says, one third of us will die by the sword, by famine and pestilence, one third by the sword, and one third be taken into captivity and to whatever lands they decide to drag us off to. That's coming to America very, very soon now. Because we did not heed and will not heed God and turn to Him with our hearts. And when this hits, and they do begin to cry out to God, He will not hear. Just as in the past. He said, listen, nobody listens, destruction comes. It has happened over and over and over again, and it is about to happen again. Already has to the church, will to the nation, very soon. Isaiah 56, verse 10. His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs, they cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber the ministry of the churches of this nation are not truly aware of what's going on, and they don't warn. They don't bark. God says if the watchman sees and doesn't warn, it's on his head. If he sees and warns and they don't pay attention, it's on their head. But most of them don't even see it and can't bark. And that is true of the church itself. They keep teaching basic doctrines. They keep teaching social stuff and having all kinds of activities, and those aren't necessarily wrong in and among themselves. But where do you hear, in the lesser church today, I'll use that expression again, where do you hear a strong message of repentance? Where do you hear the truth about what has happened to the church and the understanding of it? It's very few and far between. It is quite rare. You can't find it. Even among the biggest and most powerful, you don't hear much of it. Even those who understand a little bit. I think of one in particular who knows that this nation is coming down, but to turn in broadcast and all you see is pictures of Herbert Armstrong. For the most part, there's no message there. It's truly sad. They're dumb, greedy dogs who cannot bark. They're shepherds that cannot understand. They shall look to their own way, every one for his gain from his area. Come, you say. Come, you say they. I will fetch wine and we'll throw ourselves a strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Some of them even now are thinking, I think the biggest one, some of them think it's going to be another three, four hundred years. No, it's not. The scriptures say it can't be. We've already read about the famine and pestilence and droughts and earthquakes and stuff there in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And he says the generation that's present, when that occurs, is when it will happen. And they won't die out before it happens. In other words, there's no one around that can lead the church today. Let's add to that Micah 4. This one we're familiar with again, but I want to put it in this context. I haven't forgotten about Gaddariah, poor fellow, yet. (coughs) But here in Micah 4, he's talking about here at the end, he will assemble, verse 6, and gather her that he has driven out and that I have afflicted. So he's done this to the church. Micah, again, is an end-time prophecy just before the end of the age. I will make her that was limping a remnant, a ten percent, and her that was cast far off a strong people, and the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion, from henceforth even forever. So... In the situation we find ourselves in today, God says this limping, halting, staggering church is going to be regathered, a remnant at least, 10%, God's tithe of His people is going to be gathered together. But it doesn't matter how bad it looks today, and it looks pretty bad, and there's no leaders that can take us where we need to go. But he says that when that will come to Mount Zion, God has shown us which Zion it's talking about, this one just over the hill where it's snowing and raining today. And that once he starts this time, it isn't going to ever die out again. Right here at the end, this time, God is going to make this successful. And then he's going to make it successful for the whole world in the millennium. And then he's going to make it successful for all those rebels from the past in the great white Joan judgment. God's going to win this thing. But he's starting right here in Zion now. He's already started gathering a few to prepare the way for those that are coming. We better not forget our calling. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, To you shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So at the site of Zion and Jerusalem, he is going to begin to call a few people, and they will have the first dominion, or rule, or oversight, or organizing of what is coming. Now, that's going to happen. But now... Before that happens, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? (laughs) Haven't we read that already today? There's no leader. There's no one there. The church has no one to look to. Anywhere. Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Herbert Armstrong said, if I die, it's going to come apart. Boy, was he ever right. Did 10% get it? That's about all. He was right there, too. That's what the Scripture says. For pains have taken you as a woman in travail. And he uses that advisedly because after all this pain and misery and hurt and contractions that we are going through, we'll give birth to Christ, to the character of Christ in our hearts and minds. And he can use us, then, to do the work that he has for the sin time. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. I've noticed over the years, women will tell you just how long it took to have so and so, so and so, and so and so. That first one was 24 hours, the fourth one was only eight. And they'll compare. You think that isn't a tough, tough time? I had a pastor's wife tell me one time well you shouldn't talk about childbirth and the pain involved in it because it will scare all the young girls or they won't ever have babies yeah right no they talk about it though and then after the child is born into the world like God says they forget all about that and say I want another one no matter what they go through What happens afterward is worth it. If we can bring forth Christ, all this that we are going through will be worth it. Now sometimes it seems that it's taking a long time. How long did Noah work on that boat? About a hundred years. How long did Israel make bricks while Moses was growing up and getting trained and then went off in the desert for forty years? Another 80 years there. How long did Herbert Armstrong wait, thinking it was going to start happening in 72? He died in 86 and he was 93 years old. Waited a long time. I started learning about this when I was 7, 8 years old. I'm an old gray man now. I've waited quite a while myself. You know what? I'm not going to give up now. No one knew this close, and not after all the childbirth and I've been through. I'm going to hang on and deliver this thing. Well, he does say that of the whole church, not just the women. We can't give up. We can't give in. We're here to achieve eternal life and to show this world who God is. So he says... Hang on, like a woman in travail, until you deliver. For now, at this time, when we have no real leadership, the gathering is about to occur, now shall you go forth out of the city, and shall dwell in the open wilderness, away from the cities, shall go even to Babylon, there shall you be delivered, there the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he tells us, what well, we started going through when Herbert Armstrong died. The pain and the travail and the suffering and the destruction and the splitting and the splintering and the trauma and emotional difficulties we all went through is a result of that going into spiritual captivity, death, and destruction. He says, you come on out of those cities, you dwell in the field, and there I will deliver you. So we know where, and as the storm clouds gather around this world, we know that the wind is not very far off either. But even knowing what we know, sometimes it's hard to be patient and wait for God, even though He tells us where to do that. Now, we have been going through a thumbnail sketch at least of the various times when God has warned, and people did not listen. And he sent prophets, they decried them, they stoned them, they put them down, they killed them. They killed the Son of God, and after that they killed the apostles, save John. Persecuted, hated, derided, ridiculed, put down. Whether they could argue doctrinally or had to attack personally, it didn't really matter. Any way you could smear was the way you smeared. And then they wound up killing them. So this has been history. Now let's look at prophecy a little bit. I went into the first part of Zechariah chapter 1 where it said, To this end-time church, do not be like your fathers who stoned the prophets. Don't be like that. Now, that's a warning in Zechariah that has gone out to all Israel. Israel has the Bible, don't they? America, Canada, Australia, Northwestern Europe, the Israelite nations have the Bible. They have access to Zechariah. They can read it. And if they don't read it, somebody could read it to them. And you know how much more they'd listen if it was read to them than if they didn't? And read it themselves? Well, they won't stone themselves if they read it, but if you read it to them, they'll stone you for so doing. So it's harder on you than it is on them. Now, after that prologue, introduction, God then goes to chapter 2, 3, and 4, 5, and 6, and explains that after this destruction of the church and no leadership, he is again going to raise up leaders. In this case, two more. Chapter 3 deals with Joshua. Now, this story goes back to Ezra and Nehemiah, because that was, had to do with the building of the temple and of the walls of Jerusalem. And it was a setup for today, where Haggai and Zechariah are prophecies of a temple and a Jerusalem yet to be built, as outlined uh, in Haggai and in Daniel 9 and other places. So God uses those two names, Joshua and Zerubbabel, and calls them the sons of oil in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, which equate to Revelation 11, about verse 3, and says that they are the same sons of oil. So this time, instead of Herbert Armstrong and his son, he's going to send two more. Now, they are not going to be perfect. It says that Joshua there in chapter 3 was jerked out of the fire, so he had some problems, obviously. And then in chapter 4, it talks to Zerubbabel and says, You will finish the temple. You started it, you will finish it. And I think that implies that the one who was starting out a new movement, uh, one of the splinters, uh, started something, and then he got scared and backed off when he learned some of the things that we're talking about here today, and he stopped. Now that happened in Ezra as well. They were delayed because of opposition and difficulties for some time before they could finish building the temple. Or was it the wall of Jerusalem, but one of the two. In other words, this man that I speak of is out to lunch for a while. But God said, you started it, you are going to finish it, whoever it is. So, he's been working with a couple of individuals, probably for quite some time, to train them as he did Moses, as he did other of the prophets, and so on, so that they'll be ready to build the temple, and to build a Jerusalem, and then, when the abomination is set up, to go warn the rest of the world about what all is coming, and what they need to do, and of course will be ignored as usual. They will be persecuted, they will be libeled, they will have attempts on their lives, and God says that fire will come out of their mouths and destroy any who try to destroy them. But they will persecute, they will torment, they will not listen to those two men that God is raising up. Now, ironically, it isn't just the world, but it's the church they go to first, as is God's habit of doing. They were told not to even deal with the Gentiles at first, but to go directly to the church. And you know what? Only about 10% of the church will listen. 90% of the ones that God sends at the end time for the very last warning to the church and then to the world, only 10% of the church will pay attention. God will stir them to come and to build the final temple on this earth. That is, a spiritual temple and a physical so that it can be defiled and the times of the Gentiles can start the day that that occurs. Herbert Armstrong was right. Only 10% will listen and heed and do anything about it. And God will stir them to come and do the work. Then the world is going to come apart. And only 100 million out of nearly 7 billion are going to survive until Christ returns. History will be played out one more time. We are here today, fasting, because God selected out of all that long list of leaders that I gave, and there are more who were persecuted, tormented, and killed, including the very Son of God. To represent this end-time age through Jeremiah the prophet, who was a prophet for the end-time as well, that there would be a time when the church would not have leadership. That its leader is dead, its counselor is perished. Maybe murdered the same way Gedaliah was. I think there's evidence to support that both in the Bible and in the accounts of those who were there that night. So we're here today fasting because of the lack of leadership that has been killed off, that is missing, that is lacking, and no man has been there to lead the church. That's why we're here fasting today, and we need to be praying before this fast is over that God will rectify this situation That all the travail we have been going through that Micah talks about, the separation, the destruction, the loss of spiritual lives of God's people, will come to a halt and God will begin to build back with new leadership. I've already described that leadership and what it will be. But that's why we're here today. That's what it has to do with you and me. We've been without leadership as a church, the greater church of God, for over two and a half decades. And it's been an awfully miserable time. Travailing, in pain, and not being able to bring forth anything. The whole church. So don't let this fast get by you without tying together really why it is that we're doing it. It doesn't have to, do with, have to do with a bunch of Jews in the past in the story. It has to do with a very dynamic prophecy in Jeremiah with all these other attendant prophecies and the history of the past. And that end-time prophecy in Zechariah says, Don't be as your fathers, brethren. Don't stone the prophets. Don't ignore what you're being told. Do it, or you will die. The people who respond to the message that they're going to be hearing in the next months are going to be saved out of what is coming, and they'll be here doing God's work. The rest, 90%, The rest are going into tribulation and die. Martyrs, some will repent and be saved out of it. But the rest are going to die. And 90% of the people of this nation are going to die. God said it. He turned Satan loose, and Satan is influencing the leaders of this world today, the physical ones. And you know what? They themselves are saying 90% of the people of the earth must die. Brzezinski, oh, what's his name, the advisor to the president's, Kissinger. You can quote a bunch of them Let's say, Ted Turner, 90% of the people of the earth need to die. That's where we are. And they have been making plans and are beginning to institute those plans, and they are going to kill most of the people on earth. They'll get a good start anyway. The seven last plagues and God's wrath will finish the job. But those men are going to kill an awful lot of people in the next few years. Now let's go back to Zechariah 8 and finish this up very quickly on a positive note. He says, you're fasting these days, including the seventh month, because of lack of leadership and lack of obedience and devotion to God. And all these things are going to happen. But now let's see what God says. I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. We read that far. And was jealous for her with a great fury. God says, I didn't like what was happening to my people. I don't like what the world and Satan have done to my people. I'm jealous for them. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Eternal of Hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age." There are not probably a hundred people on the face of this earth today, out of nearly seven billion people, who even know where this is talking about. That's how precious the knowledge you have is. It's just a little over an hour's drive from where I'm standing right now, what he's talking about right here in Zechariah 8. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Eternal of Hosts. What we are going to see is going to be marvelous. We'll get past this pain and travail and frustration. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts Behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. Be strong. You're hearing these words right now today. So be strong. Don't be weak. Don't flop around. Don't renege. Don't go back on it. Be strong. Which were in the days of the foundation of the house of the eternal of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. We're about to start building that again. We're doing a feeble start of starting a spiritual temple. But the physical is to come. For before those days, there was no higher for man, no higher for beasts. Things were bad. There was affliction. I set all men, every one, against his neighbor. Haven't we seen that in the church? Haven't we experienced it right here on this property? One fighting another, disagreeing, stoning, putting down each other, and the leadership. It's not what God wants. He says, that's the bad part. It won't be that way anymore. But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal. The seed shall prosper, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. We're going to get rains like this more than just once in a while. It's going to be productive. God's going to change the climate and give us the Garden of Eden, Isaiah 51, and other places. Fear not! Very end of verse thirteen, but let your hands be strong. We got a lot of fear mongering going on in the world around us because of the things that are out there that really deserve to be afraid of. But God says, Don't you fear, you be strong and trust in me. For thus says the Eternal of Hosts fourteen, as though as I thought to punish you and your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal. And I repented not, so again have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. So he says, as much as I told you I will destroy you and did it, have just as much confidence now that I will bless you. Because whether I say it's going to be bad or it's going to be good, either way it's going to happen the way I say So even though it is still difficult, it's hard to be patient, it's hard to wait, it's hard to control ourselves, it's hard to deny ourselves things that perhaps normally we could enjoy like marriage and so on and there's nobody to marry and it isn't a good time and it's bad. It's hard, it's difficult on a lot of people sitting right here. Old age isn't much fun either, is it? creaking and groaning and barely getting around. God says he's going to give us the legs of deer. Now, he says that it's going to happen, brethren, and he said it. And he said it in the latter days. He didn't say millennium. He said in the latter days, over and over again. In the days of the two witnesses, he'll be a wall of fire and a protection. And he'll give blessings. And everything that we could want or need will be provided. As an example to the world who will not listen. So he says, if I said I'll bring destruction, and it occurred, didn't you feel it? I've been sure it for the last 25, 30 years, haven't you? I've felt it. It's hurt. Friends, relatives, dear ones, my own children departed from God and His Word. It hurts. Some who have been here departing from God and His Word. And it hurts. And having been preparing this sermon, I've been praying last night and today a great deal that God will begin this restoration and give us leadership again and take us in right directions. But I know with all my heart but when it happens, 90% will throw rocks. 10% will respond. And that 10%, that tithe of God, will carry through and reestablish Jerusalem and Zion. And these fasts that we are keeping, of this one today, into verse 19, will be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheer. Cheer for feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. God is going to turn it around. Stick to the truth, and as Paul put it, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. I hope we better understand why we missed lunch and potluck breakfast today. Because we are praying and hoping that God will turn it around. And instead of cursings, we will have blessings. Instead of leaderless, we will have leadership in the church of God. And people will respond and come and serve God and do it in love and harmony and peace to accomplish His works. Be strong. Fear not and work and be of good courage presently advise people to him no